Welcome. I am glad you are here. It's Memorial Day weekend, so we know I got a lot of families out and traveling and graduation parties and all of that good stuff happening, but you're here. So thank you for being here. We are so glad that, especially the, the late ones coming in there at the moment, we got some people in the seats here. It's going to be a great night. We did have to do a change of plans. I had planned on interviewing Tom and letting Tom Stanek tell his story tonight. Uh, he's not doing that great, not feeling that well, and so he said he didn't feel like he's up to it. I'm going to go visit him after the service tonight and chat with him and give him a hug for everybody. Um, but he'll be watching from home. Um, so I'm going to preach tonight. And uh, so we still hope to get that very special episode out this summer, uh, but we'll have to wait and see with time on that. So we're going to start a new series tonight that um, been kind of looking forward to. David and Nicole and I, we were kind of brainstorming summer series ideas. And this one all kind of started with a meme we call it emails from Paul. So I'll just give you the classic meme that got us started here on this one. It goes like this. If Paul saw this church in America, we'd be getting a letter. <laughs> You've probably saw that one before. But these, I don't know how the algorithms work on Instagram, but it must think I really find this stuff funny. So it puts them in my, these are the ones I saw this week. Here's one. The Galatian who was circumcised the day before Paul's new letter <laughs> arrived. <laughs> and then there's one that just basically gives the general structure of every letter from Paul. And every structure of every letter, it kind of goes like this. There's a beginning, and it starts with grace and peace be with you. And then he says, I thank God for you. And then he says, hold fast to the gospel. And then he says, for the love of everything holy, stop being so stupid. <laughs> And then he says, Timothy says hi. <laughs> That's some Bible nerd humor if you've read the epistles. And so we talked about this idea for the series, kind of a big overview of Paul's letters and just go through a letter a week. Obviously, we're not going to preach the whole letter, but the big themes, the big idea. Then we realized, because we are a younger church, that half of this room has never handwritten a letter in their lives. Raise your hand if you've never, ever handwritten a letter. Okay, I've thought completely wrong. Apparently you all, or you're liars. So we just changed it to emails from Paul so we could modernize it a little bit. Now, God willing, weather permitting, my family leaves uh, next Saturday for a month in the Bahamas. It's my summer sabbatical. Uh, it's all of us, me and my three kids, my wife, and our three dogs living on a boat for the next month plus. So pray for us, but we should be a good time. While I'm away, though, David and Nicole will continue to preach and to teach, and they are going to walk you through several emails from Paul. And as they do that, they're going to look at the why, the what, and the what now every week. And on top of that, you're going to get homework as you walk out the door. We'll talk a little bit more about that later. But one of our core cornerstones as a church is to be a deep church, a church who doesn't just come and listen to the pastor preach, but gets into the Word of God for themselves. And so we're going to continue to encourage you to do that this summer. Before we get into those letters, though, this week I just wanted to take a week to get to know the man behind the letters, the man behind the keystrokes. In the New Testament, in the Bible, there are 13 letters that are attributed to Paul. Sometimes you'll hear them referred to as epistles. All of these epistles comprise 28% on over a quarter of the New Testament. And so this is how it would work with these letters. 
Someone would bring Paul news about a church that maybe he helped start in a particular city. And Paul would respond to this news that he got by answering the questions that they had with a letter or going through the issues that were going on in a letter. And then he would sometimes teach in that letter or give a thought or something they needed to know about living as a follower of Jesus. And sometimes in this letter there was praise for the church. We were just talking earlier, Nicole and I, about Thessalonians. It's like, oh, how great you guys are. You're doing a great job. And sometimes he would correct the people in the letters like the Galatians saying, how dare you pervert the gospel? And so there was praise and there was correction. But as we come into these emails from Paul, we need to remember that we're only seeing one side of the email. We don't know the question he was answered. We don't know the culture. We don't always know the context. We only get to see one side of an email, just the response from Paul. Now, has anyone ever done this? Has you ever hit reply all when you didn't mean to hit reply all. We've got some really awkward stories on that one. Maybe some of you were involved in some of those reply alls before. But Paul, when he sends out his emails, he does intend to reply all to all the people in these churches. The letter would arrive and the letter would be read to the entire church. Though I'm sure at the time he did not know that he was replying all to 2,000 years of human history and billions upon billions of recipients. N.T. Wright, uh, it's my favorite bio on Paul. He writes this. He says, The Apostle Paul is not just the most prominent author of the Bible or one of the most influential Christians. He's one of the most influential people in the history of the world, period. It's a strong statement. Last week, Nicole did a great job kind of transitioning us from Ruth into this new series. But she made a statement. She says she doesn't believe that the Bible is inerrant. And maybe for some in the room, that caused you to squirm a little bit. Because for the last 40 to 50 years, there's been such a strong component of things taught in the church. It came around in about the 1970s, this biblical inerrancies. It's a relatively new idea. And one day, maybe I will preach an entire sermon on that particular topic. But tonight, at least, we need to prepare as we read these emails from Paul that that's not always the case. Jesus is fully God, and yet he's fully man. We all know this, right? Well, the Bible is fully the Word of God, but it's also fully written by a human being. Paul is not God. He is a man. And so as we read his emails that are inspired by God, we need to keep in mind the man, the man who had a personality, the man who sometimes would wear his heart on his sleeves. The man with a backstory and opinions and baggage and remorse. And believe it or not, if you go through and read the letters in evolving theology. I told Nicole earlier before the sermon, I would love to sometimes sit down and go through Paul's epistles and figure out which one was first chronologically and go through them in chronological order and watch Paul as his faith continued to evolve and mature. Now, we're going to learn about Paul in the book of Acts. Acts is not written by Paul. It's written by a really smart doctor named Luke. He also wrote about 28% of the New Testament. Just two books, though. They're very long, Luke and Acts. The book of Acts is just this investigative book. He goes out and talks to witnesses. He compiles data, and then he writes a history of the church. 
And so we go through the book of Acts, and for the first seven chapters, if you remember, Jesus ascends to heaven. He leaves the disciples behind. They're not sure what to do. They're waiting. I think it's Pentecost weekend, even this weekend, in churches that do the liturgical thing. Pentecost comes, the flame descends on them, the Holy Spirit, and then what happens? Peter preaches the good news of Jesus. Thousands of people convert, and the church is born, and then the church begins to spread like wildfire. And as the story continues throughout the book of Acts, those first seven chapters, the disciples, they continue the mission of Jesus. They heal the broken. They perform miracles. And most importantly, they are spreading the good news across racial, political, and all social barriers. But as that happens, trouble begins from within. If you have a church, if you have a group of human beings trying to do life together, you're going to have issues. The early church was no different. And so we see in those first seven chapters them having to work through organization and structure and even church discipline. But there was trouble from within, but also trouble from without. The people outside the church, and it begins as harassment. But as the church grows, it goes to persecution. And as the church grows, it goes to arrest. And then it goes to laws being enacted against the church or stores being shut down for those who support the church. And then one of the new leaders, his name is Stephen, he's arrested. And he's there and he's trying to make the case for Jesus. And the Jewish leaders are outraged and they drag him out of the city. And we get our first Christian martyr as they stone him to death. And so that's where we pick up tonight in the book of Acts. At the end of those first seven chapters, we go to Acts chapter 8, verse 1, and it says this, Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. If you're new to the church, Saul is Paul. Paul is Saul. They're the same people. And we make too much of this sometimes in the church. It's really, you know, we'll say, oh, Saul was Saul, and he was the bad guy, and over here, and then he converted to Paul, and he became the good guy. That's simply not how it is. Saul is simply Paul's Hebrew name, and Paul is the Roman equivalent of Saul. So it's like you had a Spanish name, Mateo, and you came and lived in America, and you changed your name to Matthew. It's the same name, just two different names. So here's Saul. He's our guy. He's the writer of these 13 emails we're going to look at. 28% of the New Testament. And here's our introduction to this guy. He's helping to orchestrate the murders of these heretical, progressive Jews. Paul has watched as this rebellion has grown. He's watched it spread like wildfire. He's heard the claims of the Messiah of the resurrection. He's heard their false interpretations of Scripture, that everyone can talk to God that there's no need for a priest, that there's no need for animal sacrifices, that the eye for the eye is gone, all the woke concepts of loving your enemies, and oh my gosh, grace, are you kidding me? And so when the Jewish leaders would see the Christians stirring up trouble, you know what they did? You know what they'd say? Better call Saul. <laughs> Sorry, I just thought we needed a light moment after all of that. Let's go back to the story in Acts. After the stoning of Stephen, Luke continues to give us the daily news of the church. He says, yes, there is persecution, but yes, lives are also being changed. He says that the Jewish and Samaritans have had terrible, rocky relationships for thousands of years, but now they are brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he tells the story of an Ethiopian eunuch and an apostle, and they have this Bible study on the side of the road. The eunuch says, I want to be baptized, and Philip says, yes, let's go baptize you right now. And he gives further evidence that the gospel has no bounds and that grace has no limits. And we're going to read chapter 9 together, verse 1. 
It says, Meanwhile, while all of this great stuff was happening in the church, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. Saul is a Pharisee. He is a dang good Pharisee. He's not a low-level grunt. He is at the top. And we know this because he has access to the high priest. Paul, even in one of his emails later that we'll get to, he refers to himself as the Pharisee among Pharisees. I'm good at being a Pharisee. And Pharisees were not only the religious establishment, but they were the people who gave their entire lives to the law of God. They knew every detail. They push every Jew to live to those details faithfully. And I know today, especially in a church like this, we pick on that word, the Pharisees. You shouldn't do that. People say that and you say, oh, you're such a Pharisee. But that's not how it was 30 years ago. Their reputation was good. They were the most upright. They were the most moral. They were the most decent. They were the most devoted. They were the most God-fearing of all men. That's Saul. The Pharisee among Pharisees, trying to rid society of these heretics who were twisting the word of God, rewriting scripture, allowing Samaritans and eunuchs a seat at the table. In verse 2, he says, he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. Early Christians didn't refer to themselves as Christians. That's actually a derogatory slang name that was given to them. It meant little Jesus or Jesus imitators. It later stuck and they accepted it. But they referred to themselves not as Christians, but as the way. Come to Jesus, I am the way. And so that's where it comes from. But that phrase, even that phrase, the way, was a real problem for Saul. He says, this loser Jesus, calling himself the way, the only way to God, and he's loosey-goosey followers buying this silly message, hook, line, and sinker. And Saul goes to the authorities and he asks for a letter to be a Christian bounty hunter. A letter that would give him permission to hunt down the misfits and drag them from their homes and imprison them. And in his ultimate way, have them exterminated. See, I want you to see that Saul, Paul, is not a lukewarm Jew. He is all in. He despises these people. And so there is a front for these people for everything he believes. They're worshiping Jesus like he's God. They have this blasphemous theology of a God in three persons that just cannot be stood for. And so Paul isn't attacking Christians because he's an atheist. He's attacking and he's on the offensive because he believes that he is on a God-anointed mission to put an end to these perverters of Scripture. And so I hope you see, man, he is passionate. It's one of the characteristics of Paul. He is zealous for truth and justice. And he's a little full of his own goodness and righteousness, too, in the process. Guess what? Jesus is going to use all of those attributes and more. Jesus is going to use Paul's reputation as a Pharisee. His deep knowledge of Scripture, Jesus is going to use that. His education in Greek and Roman, Jesus will use that. His commitment, his intelligence, even his singleness, Jesus is going to use that. 
All of the things that made Saul one of the best at prosecuting Christians, Jesus is going to use for his glory and all of our good. Have you ever looked back at your own life, maybe pre-Jesus or before your remodeling of your faith, and just marveled at even the bad stuff in the story that was difficult at the time and God using that here Today, I took some time to do that this week. Most of you know I grew up as a Mormon. In the Mormon church, there are no paid preachers, which meant that the congregation had to take turns. And so since I was two or three years old, I remember standing in front of a congregation having to give a talk. Jesus is using that. I spent many years as an atheist. And during that time, when I tried to come to faith, I wrestled with the hard questions. And I made fun of the simpletons that needed the crutch of religion. Said, you're all going to drink the blue Kool-Aid. Guess what? Jesus is using that. I'm a workaholic. That one still hasn't come full circle yet. (laughs) But God is using my willingness to work stupid hours these past seven years for his glory. I don't know what your background is, what your story is, but God will redeem your story, your struggles, your gifts, even your sin for his glory in the church. So back to Saul, he believes that his truth is the truth, that what he is doing to these followers of Jesus is good and pleasing to the Lord, that he is the one on the moral high ground. And so verse 3 says, as he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul says, who are you, Lord? Verse 6, and the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. I love that image, that something happens to Paul. He has this experience with Jesus. And this experience knocks him to the ground. It blinds him to the point he is unable to eat or drink. Have you ever had one of those experiences? And to be clear, Saul's encounter with Jesus is not this mountaintop, I went on a mission trip and feel so good high experience. Saul's world, as he knows it, is crumbling Have you ever had that experience with Jesus? That diagnosis, that phone call, that section of scripture that you just can't get through, that philosophy class. Maybe like me this week, that realization that non-Christians are generally much better human beings than Christians. Your world comes collapsing down. We got words for it, existential crisis, or a crisis of faith, or a crisis of identity, or we simply call it crumbling of everything you've ever known. But Saul's righteousness is confronted. What he thought he knew about God has been turned upside down. The temple system, the priests, the sacrifices. Paul says, if, if we remove all that, what's What's next? I mean, I thought I had it right. I believe so strongly in my version of God, my interpretation of morality. I thought I was on mission for God. What if I've been wrong this entire time? 
In that voice, he thinks back, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul says, me? Who are you? And the voice says, I'm Jesus. I'm the one you're persecuting. Saul left Jerusalem on the mission of his life. If he had happened to bump into God along the way, maybe he thought he would hear, Saul, Saul, well done, my good and faithful servant. But Saul hears the voice of God, and God says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? I mean, at the very least, Saul must be thinking, don't you mean them? Because I'm persecuting them. I certainly had no intentions of persecuting this bright light from the sky. Jesus says, man, you mess with my people, you're messing with me. I'm so connected to my followers that whatever is true of them is true of me, and whatever is true of me is true of them. So after this earth-crumbling experience with Jesus, Paul gets three days in the dark. He's blind. He can't eat. He can't sleep. Nothing but time to process, to think, to wrestle to replay that day and what was said, to replay his entire life, trying to rebuild, trying to put those puzzle pieces together. Paul says, really? Those people, the Samaritans, the eunuchs, really, I'm not, I'm not saved by my effort, but by grace? What about good deeds? I mean, why in the world would anyone do anything good if all the bad they did could just simply be wiped away by the blood of Jesus? Man, I can't wait to ask Paul when we get to heaven about those three days, about that existential crisis. Because, man, we've all had our own. I've had two or three this week, probably. (laughs) The anguish, the wrestling, the trying to put the square peg into the round hole, but that fire that Paul was fighting so hard to extinguish was now consuming and refining him. And so let me give you a sneak peek. Jesus says to Paul, why are you persecuting me? Me, the church, and him are one. And eventually that begins to connect with Paul. He says things like, it's not I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Or he tells the Romans in chapter 6, he says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In that order, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in the newness of life. Ephesians 2, 4, he says, But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, which was with him, he loved us even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Just that one line, why are you persecuting me? Paul will spend the rest of his life unpacking for himself and for the church. That to be a Christian means that we are united with Christ. Whatever is true of Christ is true of me. That means if Jesus died to pay the penalty for sin, he paid my sin. If Jesus has been raised to a place of honor, that means I have been raised to a place of honor. If Jesus is God's son, that means I'm God's son or daughter. It must mean it has nothing to do with earning or deserving or achieving. And he gets to that point that must mean then it's all about receiving. It's all about grace. And then he begins to send emails to the Ephesians church. Chapter 2, he says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. 
It's not from yourselves. It's a gift from God, not by works, so no one can boast. Ephesians 3.8, says, though I am the least deserving. Do you see the reversal of his perceived righteousness? He says, though I am least deserving of all God's people, he graciously gave me the privilege of telling the Gentiles about the endless treasure available to them in Christ. And so as Paul rebuilds his face, all of those feelings of goodness and righteousness, they're coming crashing down. What he perceived as his best moment for God has turned out to be his greatest rebellion against God. Is that a hard pill to swallow? (laughs) You better believe it. But the gospel is taking hold of Paul, unlike it has anyone in the history since. Verse 10 goes on. He says, Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord spoke to Ananias in a vision, saying, Ananias, he says, Yes, Lord. The Lord said, Go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. Paul is praying to God, trying to seek answers trying to forgive or seek forgiveness. He says, I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, exclaimed Ananias, I love this. I heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as to the people of Israel. So Ananias went and found Saul, and he laid his hands upon him and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Verse 18 says, Instantly, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes. He regained his sight, and then he got up, and he was baptized. Saul spent a few days after this with the believers there in Damascus, but he goes immediately to work. It's like, I believe Jesus is the Christ. And so he begins preaching. He begins sharing this new faith wherever he was at in that faith journey at that moment. And the people were floored. They say, isn't that that guy? I mean, it's funny. Even Paul tries to join up with the disciples. They're like, "Uh -uh." (laughs) uh-uh. They were afraid of him or thought Paul was trying to trick them. But this whole section of Scripture ends with this beautiful verse. It says, then the church enjoyed a time of peace and was strengthened, living in the fear of the Lord, encouraged by the Spirit, and increasing in numbers. And that's my prayer for the church in America too. And so Saul, Paul, he has an experience with Jesus. It's a difficult experience and it blinds him and it brings him to his knees and it opens up this Pandora's box of questions that will take him a lifetime to unpack. And he goes not just as an apostle, not just as an influential Christian, but as one of the most significant people in the history of the world. And so this summer, this is your introduction, you get an opportunity to read firsthand the fruit of God's refining fire upon the life of Paul. I hope you're excited about that. I know I will be, absolutely. I'll be watching from the Bahamas, Nicole and David, and checking in. But I want to close tonight with one more sneak peek and one more email from Paul. And I don't, who's teaching Romans? 
All right, David, I'm not going to step on your, your toes or thunder here or anything, but I, I want to just sneak peek it one more time. A few years ago, right before we started this church, so it was about seven years ago, I went on a mission trip to Belize, just me and two other guys, went down there to work in an orphanage for a friend who had gone down to start one. And we got there, and he's got a community of believers there and believe that, that they were meeting in his home, and so they invited us over. And one of the friends that went with us is a non-believer, and he was a little apprehensive about going on this trip. I said, come on, come on, let's go, let's go. And so we go on this trip, and we're in this like little Bible study, and they say, well, everybody introduce yourself, go around the room, and tell us your favorite book of the Bible. And our friend who's a non-believer has no idea even what a book of the Bible is, and so I just whisper over, go with John. John's always a good one to go with. So he says, John, you know, and that's my turn. I got a lot of words in me, <laughs> and so I, I say my favorite book of the Bible is Romans. But I couldn't leave it there. I had to also let him know that my favorite chapter was chapter 8. And I couldn't let up there, I had to let them also know that my favorite verse is verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And they said, we didn't ask you that, thanks, moving along. <laughs> but I truly love the letters of Paul. And yeah, sometimes his personality comes through and sometimes his personal opinions comes through. But this man, this guy whose world came crashing down upon him, what comfort we get from the scales that were removed from his eyes. And so this week, I imagine Paul sitting there in the dark, blind, hungry, confused, bewilders, bewildered, and he says, could this be true? He starts to think, have I been condemning the wrong people? And if you've ever read the book of Romans, the first seven verses is just this big rhetorical argument that Paul is making to the Romans there. And he's just making this great argument, and it's outlined in Scripture. And he's building a case, and he's building up his beliefs, and he's building to this crescendo that is there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What does this mean? What does it mean to me, Paul, that there is no condemnation for me? for humanity. And as that begins to take hold, I like to imagine Paul there in the dark, blinded, hungry, coming to that realization that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus and what that means. And he begins to speak to himself, Romans 8, 14. He says, for those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The spirit I receive does not make me a slave so that I live in fear. Rather, the spirit I receive brought about my adoption to sonship. And he just cries out, oh, Abba, Father. He says the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are the children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. And he begins to think, I consider these sufferings that I'm sitting in now not worth comparing with the glory that will one day be revealed to us. For creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. And Paul thinks, I know that the whole creation has been groaning since the beginning of time like childbirth right up till now. Not only so, but we ourselves, who are but the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as I wait for the adoption to sonship, for the redemption of my body. For in this hope I was saved today. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not have, we wait for it patiently. 
And he says, oh my gosh, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to the purpose. And in this moment, the scales fall from his eyes. And he says, what then shall I say in response to all of these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare even his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. And he ends by saying, for I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any power, neither heights, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you. God, we thank you that we can even call you Father, that you've brought this group of misfits into your kingdom, into your family, that Jesus who suffered because of all of us calls us his friends. God, help us to turn from the darkness of our sin, to turn from our self-righteousness and look to your blinding light. God, I pray for each person here tonight. We write amazing stories. And it's no mistake that we are all here in this moment together. And so God, as we give praise, as we close, God, I pray that if someone needs that encounter with you in this moment, that you would speak to them as we sing. In Jesus' name, amen. Won't you stand?